Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 147 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's lunchtime on Tuesday, December 10th, 2019, but we're working through lunch because we care and it's cold and rainy outside. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. We have articles of impeachment, apparently. <laughs> we have. We got the articles. Get your red hot articles of impeachment. We got a two for one sale. Get your abuse of power and your, uh, what is it? Is it, how's it framed? The contempt of Congress, uh, abuse of Congress, something about Congress, not cooperating with Congress. Just bad. It's, it's just a, it's a one-liner, bad. So we've got impeachment <laughs> articles. Um, we're going to talk about that in a moment. And under the general heading of Trumplandia, we'll also talk about the Inspector General's report, uh, which goes back to... Not the subject matter of these two articles of impeachment, but nope. rather the Mueller report subject matter. Um, and we will then pivot over to talk about the just arrived conference agreement on the National Defense Authorization Act. We'll have a lot more, I'm sure, <coughs> next week. Today, we're going to highlight just one particular provision, Section 1631. So, if you're and, and, and otherwise note that the Democrats largely caved. Oh, so maybe we'll touch on a few other things as well. Um, 1631 will be mercifully free from politics, I think, but it's really interesting from a legal perspective and sort of a policy perspective. Um, we will note uh, and talk a little bit about the report, uh, this big investigative report about public representations of success in Afghanistan out of proportion to what the actual data and beliefs were, sort of a Pentagon Papers type situation without all the legal wrangling, just a straight up investigative report. Um, and, 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 right. Kind of too bad. And without the drama. Without any drama. This is no fun. Um, and then it's, not, it's, it's it's a sign of both how busy the news cycle is and how desensitized we've become to everything. Well, that's true enough. And and on on that note, there's a there's a, a huge case going on in the First Circuit and the Sarnay of the Boston uh, bomber case. We'll talk about what is the issue on appeal there and whether it's got any legs. Um, we may take passing note of the horrific uh, killing in Pensacola by the uh, the Saudi uh, military service member who uh, it was a green on blue attack there. Uh, we probably won't go too much detail there. Not a lot of legal angle for us to explore as yet. Uh, but then we'll return to a topic at the end that we mentioned in our last show, I believe it was, where we talked about the pending process of designating one or more uh, Mexican drug cartels as FTOs, foreign terrorist organizations. That's been suspended, but the commentary surrounding all this has raised an interesting legal issue, or perhaps I should say uh, confusion about the law. Uh, as for frivolity, we're, you don't have to worry about spoilers this week if you're a follower of The Mandalorian, because I did not do my job of watching episode five, Steve, so we can't talk about The Mandalorian's latest episode. Instead, we're relegated to talking about uh, much less uh, exciting and blastery things like college football playoffs and bowl selections. I, you know, I really do. I, I do think that it's too bad that they didn't end up having the Texas Bowl be Texas versus Texas A&M. Oh, my God. That would have been amazing. That was, I think I, I, that was in the cards. And I think, like, because Oklahoma made the playoff, like, Oklahoma, like, teams, yeah. teams got re-slotted. There was a domino effect. Uh, my understanding is that people people dispute who's responsible for this, but that there's a serious reluctance on the part of somebody somewhere, maybe it's at AM, maybe it's at UT, maybe it's a little bit of both, maybe it's institutional for the Big 12 or the SEC, but a reluctance to allow them to come back together on the football field. And I will say this, just to complete this early frivolity, um, 
That moment obviously needs to come back. That's one of the great all-time rivalries. We need that game back. It needs to come back the proper way. We need to reinstitute the series, and it needs to be the day after Thanksgiving. And we don't need to come about as some like disappointing season-ending third-tier bowl game. So I actually don't mind that they didn't pull it off this The National time. Security Law Podcast, here for what matters. <laughs> exactly. Um, speaking of second-tier, uh, third-tier bowl game, shall we, shall we turn to uh, the Congress? Bowl? Well, I was going to go to Congress there. Impeachment Bowl. The Chick-fil-A Impeachment Bowl. Wouldn't it be sponsored by Chick-fil-A? But these days, you know, Chick-fil-A's know. in trouble now. Chick-fil-A has uh, changed its tune a little bit. So maybe it would be. That's all part of their <laughs> rebranding. The, it's like when Rick Perry got like smart guy glasses. The Amazon the Amazon uh, Impeachment Bowl. <laughs> yeah, the Jeff Bezos <laughs> Impeachment Bowl. Well, actually, so, you know, I, I this was not our run of show, but I also do think <laughs> that we should say a word about the, the new lawsuit Amazon's filed. Um, yeah, rising out of the yeah. Jedi, the sure. Jedi contract. That could be part three of Trumplandia segment. Okay. So impeachment. So by the way, we we really got to get uh, theme music for Trumplandia. Do we though? Yeah, yeah. I. So I, I, you know, my voice is messed up because I'm still getting over strep and I'm sick. But my voice is also messed up because I'm just I'm tired. You're tired. Like, See, if you say that every week. But it's just it keeps getting worse. Like I just I'm I'm waiting for I'm waiting to be surprised. Like I'm waiting for, you know. So, some institution to assert itself. I'm waiting for you like know, our court, maybe. I don't just anybody, <laughs> like just you know somebody to actually sort of break this whole like cycle of tribalism. Because I mean, you know, the reaction to the IG report yesterday, the reaction, you know, we actually have articles of impeachment today. You know, we have Bill Barr going on national television and being like just a a world class hypocrite. I just I don't even know what but to do I, anymore. I think part of the cure to the specific emotional impact on you is your more own podcast. Your, more podcasts, less Twitter. You're, I think you yeah. are, you're much too willing to participate in engagements with people who are not there for the rational reasoned argument on Twitter. No, no, and and I, I respect that you, you, you knock them down, but they're like those old inflatable clown punching deals. You punch them down and they come popping right back up because they're in it for the outrage. But I don't, I don't think it's my, so to be fair, I'm not sure it's the engagement on Twitter. That's the problem. Twitter is where I'm, I mean, Twitter's the source of my depression, but not from the troll. Right, Twitter's the source of my depression because it's there that I see just how much signal boosting there is when people like Steve Scalise, right, the number two Republican in the House of Representatives, um, tweets out a conclusion about the IG report that is literally the opposite of what the IG report concludes. When Doug Collins, the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, tweets out tweets out you know assertions, portrayals of the IG report. That are literally the opposite right. of what the actually It's just like, and most know, people will never read the report itself, and, and will never problem. know otherwise. And, and, so, and so, how you know, I just, I'm increasingly um, unconvinced that there's a me- that there's a needle moving mechanism available to anybody. Right now, I, I we've talked about this so often know, over, over the years on the show. No, you shouldn't be sorry because it's an ongoing problem of the first order. But the needle moving mechanism is the likely voting, you know, polling percentages on the Republican primaries in, at the district level where people are looking at their political prospects. And until those numbers change, um, most of this behavior is not going to change, which is gross and terrible, but it is what it is. Um, but it just, it just, I just, what kind of precedent are we setting? I just, I don't, you know. That's right, what we're, we're, wait, we're best president. The problem is not what future generations might do. It's similar to this. The problem is what's happening. It's, it's not at all about the precedent. It's yeah. about the actual current state of affairs. That's not making me feel any better. No, I know. I'm sorry. Um, right. You're coming to the wrong place. Okay, the impeachment articles. Uh, 
this is this is not just an occasion to reflect on the same stuff you'll hear on every other media outlet. So maybe we can just ask, uh, is it surprising um, that any of the stuff from the Mueller report doesn't show up there? Was that the right call to keep it narrowly confined uh, to just the what we'll call the Ukraine uh, episode? And then the collateral question that's raised by non-cooperation with the early stages of the inquiry about the Ukraine episode. So I do, I mean, I do think that there's a clear political strategy reflected not just in the articles of impeachment, but also in the deal on the trade agreement, right, and in the deal on the NDAA, that for better or for worse, the Democratic leadership in the House has decided that the best way to have any shot at making a dent with independent voters is to both look like the impeachment inquiry is focused and not just we're out to get Trump, even though that's what the base wants, and to make it look like we're still doing other stuff too, right? To sort of dissipate the charge that it's a do-nothing house. Well, let's disaggregate that focus first on the uh, scope of the inquiry, keeping it limited so it's not just, look, we're against him on everything. Here's all the horrible things he's done. Uh, there's a strong case we made that, because you and I have talked, uh, look, I... I am not a liberal or progressive, and I've been saying that he was impeachable for long before there was ever Ukraine gate, yep. uh, based on a, a whole combination of, of rule of law, corrosive uh, behaviors. Um, so you, I certainly agree that you could mount any number of additional claims and, and bases uh, based on his prior activities apart from Ukraine gate. But I do think it's probably smart to narrow the attack surface, if you will. Right. Uh, and I think that's what they've done there. But then they didn't quite entirely do that because if that was your sole strategy, you you would hang your hat entirely on the substance of the Ukraine extortion and you would leave out the non-cooperation with Congress, which I think does create some attack surface for distracting and delaying arguments that will find some purchase with some people <coughs> who say, now, wait a minute, um, we haven't fully litigated all the subpoena resistance. And so you're kind of jumping in front of the courts on that and asserting that that itself is impeachable. I think that is where they're now going, they being the, the president's defenders, will now train their fire and they'll seize on that and change the subject as much as they can away from the extortion of Ukraine uh, for personal political benefit. And towards this question of separated powers and subpoena compliance. So I think that's right that there's a tax surface. But I think the flip side is there's also defense in depth, right? That, there, that, that is sort of both pros and cons, right? That the, the pros of it to me are then you can also say there may very well be other stuff too. We just weren't able to adequately investigate it because of all of this obstruction, right? And And – there's more historical precedent, of course, for obstruction as an impeachment charge. It was one of the charges against President Clinton. It was a proposed article against President Nixon. You know, there's going to be a tax surface no matter what. I mean, the, nothing yep. the Democrats do in the right. House is going to be somehow like, oh, never mind. Like, we're okay with this now. Oh, no, that, that much is clear. That much is clear. But if they're going to leave some things off the table, why throw that one in? Uh, you, make, you make the best case for it, I think, there. But I'll just say, I do think that we have to understand the articles as being part of a coordinated strategy in which the trade deal and the NDAA are also on the in Right. The, in so the let's mix. go to those other things. So so what you're referring to is the fact that it looks like the US Mexico Canada agreement, NAFTA, I insist on calling it. <laughs> just a revision the revisions to NAFTA probably will go through. Interestingly and importantly, I learned from listening to Stuart Baker's podcast. Um, it looks like uh, there's some talk about pulling 
from the revised deal. This element where we were going to extend Section 230 immunity for uh, Internet uh, platforms, uh, we were going to kind of build into the treaty uh, shades of migratory birds uh, between, you know, you like that? Between the United States and Canada. Kind of build that into the treaty so even if Congress later on chips away at it from a domestic statutory perspective, maybe it's built into the treaty. It sounds like that might get yanked out. Um, and then also, as, as I noted in the top of the show, we've got an NDAA agreement as well. So the Defense Authorization Act is going to go forward. I think it's certainly, A, it's good government to take care of the stuff that you can take care of that needs to be taken care of. That certainly, in my mind, includes a gigantically important, especially here in Texas, I will add, trade deals and also the Defense Authorization Act. I'm I, I'm really glad they're getting this done. If the reason the leadership is supporting that is because they've made a political calculation that it's better to do this than to sort of throw everything under the bus, um, well, whatever. I'm just glad they're getting so, done but, but, the, but, the, but, the job of the, of the building. But Bobby, you are you are who this is aimed at, right? Because I think the this is going to, and their science already has, really pissed off the base, right? That that things have been given up, right? That the that there's any cooperation at all with Trump. That is that is that is that are you saying that? Part of the base that there's an element, of course, there's an element wants everything, but yeah. that there's a sizable yeah. uh, request for a scorched earth policy that that cooperates on nothing of the ilk of the Republicans with Obama toward but the end of Obama's presidency. Why would they want to emulate that? I thought this would be the same people who thought that was a horrible set and of behaviors. Yeah, because the concern is that Trump will take any deal and call it a victory, right? right. So and that's what I'm getting at. So like, my understanding is that the, the idea behind it, the political theory behind it, is especially on trade. In particular, this isn't about the NDA. It's really about the trade agreement that once that deal goes through, then Trump gets to campaign on, hey, see, I improved on NAFTA. And and the idea is, well, why not prevent him from having anything to campaign on? And I think the best answer is the one you just gave. Well, isn't this just the same bad behavior that puts electoral advantage so much in front of just getting done the business of government? Um, we, if, if both sides are into that strategy because they feel that the, agree, the, there's the, a danger to unilateral disarmament, right? And so I think the, the this, I, I, to eye me, for an eye, whole world blind. I, listen, I, I, I agree. The question is, we'll only be able to judge this in hindsight. But to me, like this strikes me as a huge calculated ploy by House Democrats to sort of try to strengthen their center, right? And try to attract and appeal to whatever undecided voters are still out there. Now you're talking. Right. Um, in advance of next year's elections, because whatever happens with impeachment, right? What a crazy idea. You know, the, it's not Trump can no longer say the, the House. I mean, he will because yeah. he's Trump. But So I would I would argue to you that you should feel very excited about this in because every sign yeah. that, that Democrats in general can tack, might tack, will sometimes tack to the center increases the chances that if Trump is still in office, which he will be, uh, come election time, uh, I would imagine, uh, based on what the Senate's likely to do, uh, that they might actually win. Of course, the ultimate question is who do they nominate? And That's right. We're, we're not the experts to give you analysis on that, but um, that, that certainly looms large. Okay, what about this IG report? So yeah. the exact same moment all this is going down, we have sort of uh, we have sort of a, a flashback Monday. We go back to to Mueller, which seems like so long ago. Um, the IG report clearly and repeatedly states that there was no no evidence of political bias or any kind of conspiracy or otherwise in the initiation and the pursuit of this. 
On the other hand, definitely finds and comes down pretty hard on FBI for how it then implemented the ins and outs, especially with the Woods procedures with verification. Could you the, remind people what the Woods procedures yeah, are? Yeah, so the Woods procedures named for Michael Woods, former FBI uh, National Security Branch lawyer, who uh, in response to a much earlier totally unrelated um, issue with how information was put into FISA applications into the FBI's uh, verified affidavits, about certain factual representations. I, I believe the issue in this original or incident, by the way, was failing to disclose to the court that a, a witness was also previously, I think, uh, a fact witness whose statements were represented to the FISA court had a prior relationship as, I think, a cooperating informant with the FBI. So there was a failure to sort of, and, and that was diagnosed to be a failure where the, the headquarters office wasn't aware of what other parts of the organization knew, so there wasn't enough effort to coordinate and be fully fulsome in gathering all the information. Mm-hmm. Woods Procedures is a shorthand way of describing the obligation when going to the FISA court to vet all the factual representations to see to make sure that what's being put forward to the court is, is what in fact collectively FBI knows. Let's put it that way, and or so, at least, or at least, uh, is what FBI deems relevant because that's because that's 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 the, that's where I think there's a little bit of, of wiggle right. Here. And so it sounds like the the Inspector General's report comes down pretty hard on on some of the agents at various levels involved at various stages of the FISA application process, saying like, hey, this this should have been disclosed more, that right. should have been disclosed you more. You fully candid about this. Right, and, and I haven't gone into the details enough to feel like I have any kind of sense of whether it's fair or not. Um, but it is certainly the case that uh, it is perfectly plausible that there was no bias, that no one was biased, but that there were uh, errors in the application process, things that should be done better. And the IG says we're going to conduct a larger investigation to see how well the Woods procedures get implemented. All that sounds like good government and fixing some problems. Um, as you pointed out, nonetheless, political partisans have seized on this and, and basically just misrepresented the entirety of it, saying like, aha, proven bias, coup, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that is disappointing. Yes, it is disappointing. <laughs> it's it's also false. Um, so I, here's the problem, right? The we are so conditioned to think of the world as being black and white, right? And there's so and it's really gray. And I think everyone wanted to react to the IG report as you know everything was good or everything was bad, right? Like how could it possibly be that there was no bias and yet there were errors, right? It's like guys, welcome to government, right? Like or this just is life. That's but, just how it is. But also, I mean, but you know, <clears throat> do do we actually think? That every single warrant application, FISA or otherwise, that government officers make provides every single you know iota of relevant evidence to the judge and includes 100% factually accurate submissions to the court. No. Now I'm not to say that is not to condone that. I mean, there there are all these people on yeah. Twitter yesterday, like saying it's a bad day to be a civil liberties lefty on Twitter. I'm like, why? Like. I can talk and chew gum at the same time. I can believe that the government has way too much leeway in these cases, that it's not held to nearly high enough standard, that this case is pretty good proof of that, and that it still doesn't actually vindicate any of the central charges that were made that led to this whole investigation in the first place, right? The report specifically says there was plenty of stuff to justify the FISA warrant. Fully predicated. Right. Even, Even if you didn't include... The problematic stuff, as opposed to just supplementing it properly. There was still plenty of stuff for the for the warrant. 
there was no suggestion that the initiation or furtherance of the investigation was done for partisan political reasons. Um, the IG report documents bias in the other direction with FBI agents celebrating Trump's victory. I mean, like, this is just, we are, we, I, I've said this again. I, I mean, I've said this before. I'm going to have to say it again. Like, we are continually being peed on and told that it's raining. And I just, <laughs> you know, I don't understand at what point we all lost our ability to be critical thinkers and to actually read primary documents for ourselves and not just say, yeah. oh, I like that newscaster. I, I don't think there was, he must be telling me the truth. I don't think there was ever a time where it's such a golden age. I think it's worse now. Yeah. But I don't think there was ever a golden age in which people were, you know, much Walter, more disinterested. Walter I think we, you put your finger right on the difference. The difference is that we previously had, going back 30 years, an information environment in which everything got filtered through uh, a relatively tight bottleneck that had a lot of editorial screening function. Now we have a decentralized, diffused information distribution system where everybody can be a voice and all the familiar pathologies of cognitive bias and echo chambers take their effect. Um, this creates a really wonderful opportunity <laughs> that is now widely recognized yeah. for gaslighting people left and right, and advancing truthy claims instead of true claims, and having it all be taken as gospel truth when in, when a casual engagement with the actual primary materials, which never actually happens, would show otherwise. That's that's our dilemma, and it's definitely not going to go away. All right, so it's bad enough that the average, that, that there are plenty of people out there not doing their due diligence. But I want to say it is worse that there are elected officials and senior government officials out there openly trying to either mischaracterize or discredit this. So, right, you mentioned some of the reactions from like folks on the Hill. Um, for folks who haven't seen this, Attorney General Barr gave an interview this morning with Pete Williams that I just couldn't believe, and yet I guess I could believe because it's Barr, um, where he basically said, like, where he says with a straight face, like, you know, it is deeply antithetical to our civil liberties to have, you know, sitting presidents initiating investigations to go after their political rivals. And it's like, first of all, that's <laughs> not what the IG report said about right. Obama, and it is what everyone is saying about your <laughs> fracking boss. Like, how how can you speak out of both sides of your mouth like that? And of course, you know, I love Pete Williams, but Pete did not push back on this. It's like, well, isn't that inconsistent with your defense of the president's conduct vis-a-vis -vis Biden in Ukraine? That wasn't a follow-up. Really? Really. That's I, So I didn't see this. I'm surprised that wasn't the follow-up. Yeah, no kidding. But so I just, you know, it's, and I don't know if you saw the statement from Durham yesterday. Uh, I gather he said something about how this is premature to comment on this or something. Yeah, so uh, you know, he was uh, being critical of the IG. A sitting, uh, a sitting U.S. Or a sitting federal prosecutor criticizing an IG report. I mean, like that's, you know, I, I look. I'm not worried about Durham, um, but I do dislike what you're telling me. Uh, Barr apparently said I'm not terribly surprised because his track record with the Mueller report was was obviously of a piece with that. Yeah, I just, I mean. Why is there nobody, and I mean nobody, you know, in the Republican establishment standing up and saying, you know, the IG has spoken, you know, it reveals some concerning things that we should talk about. Is it clear like, that there's nobody, has Mitt Romney not said anything? Romney hasn't said anything. Um, right, is, it, is, it, is it just that it's not amplifying on Twitter? I mean, is it... I, looked, is it, I actually yeah. went and looked, and there hasn't yeah. been any statements about... I, I haven't seen anything from Romney about the IG report. Um, Senator Cornyn, who I actually usually think is pretty level-headed on this stuff, jumped right in on the whole vindicates the narrative bullshit. I mean, like... Well, it's it is... Very clear that as we head into the election, 
that fear of what would happen if anyone visibly breaks breaks ranks with the president on this has has gripped and now controls uh, the views and the public statements where the best you can kind of hope for in most of these cases is to stay silent and don't make it worse. Um, it's very unfortunate. Profiles and courage, everybody. Profiles and courage, indeed. Um, let's switch to a happier topic. Do we have any more Trumplandia? It was just you had something else you were going to mention. Did what I? Was it? Oh, the Amazon Jedi suit? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> it's, for people who don't know uh, which acronym you're using with Jedi, uh, it sounds pretty exciting. An Amazon Jedi suit, eh? It is the joint enterprise. Is that you can buy a suit to look like, uh, you know, Anakin? Jedi in this context is unfortunately just an acronym for the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure Contract. Big bucks. Big cloud computing contract. May the money be with you. Right. And so Microsoft wins the contract. Amazon had bid for it. Whoa, Amazon had not just bid for it, though. I mean, like there had been like a long running view that Amazon was by far the front runner. Um, and so Amazon has filed. I mean, it actually filed this a couple weeks ago, but it was the redacted version of their complaint was released yesterday. Amazon is suing the federal government in what's called a bid protest, which is mm-hmm. basically this, this specific legal procedure that contractors can use to challenge yeah. the process by which something unfair was made in picking the other guy for the winner. This is a very common thing in government contracting, but you don't normally have this particular allegation. Well, that's the thing. So there are the sort of standard fair, you didn't follow your own contracting regulations. That's that's the that's the stuff the, of most the of The fix cases. was in. Right. But then there's um, these errors were not merely the result of arbitrary and capricious decision making. They were a result of improper pressure from President Donald J. Trump who launched repeated public and behind-the-scenes attacks to steer the Jedi contract away from Amazon Web Services to harm his perceived political enemy, Jeffrey Bezos, founder and CEO of AWS's parent company, Amazon, and owner of the Washington Post. DOD's substantial and pervasive errors are hard to understand and impossible to assess, separate and apart from the president's repeatedly expressed determination to, in the words of the president himself, quote, Screw Amazon, unquote. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, competitive bids die in darkness, I guess, is the uh, tagline. But, I mean, it just, I, I just, this, here, here, here lies yet another interesting case about what we do about conventional legal doctrines, presumptions of regularity, yeah. right, in a context in which the president is not only running his mouth, but in which there's every reason to believe that he actually probably did put some pressure on DOD. Yeah, I completely agree. It goes to this recurring theme that in many ways, Trump will go down not as the one who advanced executive unilateral power the most, but the one who who harmed it the most by by taking these endlessly, uh, as in this case, um, comical uh, positions and statements that underscore why, in fact, you can't have binding deference to the executive branch in this area or that area, because sometimes you're going to get a Donald J. Trump. Yep. All right. Um, anyway, so that's in the Court of Federal Claims. I think that could be a title. Sometimes you're going to get a Donald J. Trump. Sometimes you're going to get a Donald J. Trump. You should write that down. Yeah. Here's a pen. Uh, yeah, I'm going to remember. Um, you say that now. Yeah, we'll see. All right, what's next? Um, the NDAA. Can we, let's pivot over to a, just a classic national security law topic. The National Defense Authorization Act comes out once a year. Uh, for a while, there was a lot of thought that this would be the first time in forever <laughs> that – Congress couldn't get itself because uh, right, usually the NDA is the one must-pass bill. Yeah, this so this and it always has you know it's thousands of pages of everything under the sun. Horse trading, Some, pork. Sometimes I I wouldn't say it's a lot of pork normally. I mean it's 
it depends if you're painting with a broad enough brush, I guess a lot of military spending maybe is put under the heading. But my point I was going to make is usually it's pretty focused on the Pentagon's affairs and right. it doesn't become, you don't see too much else hung on it. That became an issue here where there was this sort of big push to try to build into it. Um, building on the Mark, Mark Ruffalo's film, Dark Waters, building some environmental protective uh, legislation. And I believe that did not make it in. in no, the but end. the family leave stuff did, right? So so, so federal family leave for, fe- 12, I think, 12 weeks of family leave for federal employees is in the House version, right? That's, interesting. That's, and so that got through the conference? That's my understanding. Okay. So uh, I, I should say, I yeah. have I have the conference report in my email. I have not yet read it. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, the uh, the combined document with the joint explanatory statement in the full text is 3,488 pages. I was so too busy reading the 400-some-odd-page IG report. <laughs> surprised you didn't get to that, Steve. Sorry. Um, we'll have lots of coverage uh, on that as it goes ahead. There's tons of relevant stuff in there for the issues that are our core bread and butter. Uh, I'm going to focus on one that goes right to one of my favorite recurring themes, and that is the way that bit by bit over time we are gradually building not just the institutional and policy architectures to compete in the gray zone. That is to say, to do things that are not armed conflict, they're not overt uses of force, but that aren't just espionage and kind of -of run-of-the-mill covert action in interstate competition with the Russians and others, but rather have some sort of in-between kind of quality. And a lot of the literature refers to this as gray zone competition. It's like the Russian interference in 2016 being a, a primary example in what the Russians do in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. Um, the example I have in mind here is different from what we've seen in the past. In the past, Congress, through the NDAA, has repeatedly done things to build out and tweak the oversight and authorization frameworks for military cyber operations. So basically to empower and to prune away legal obstacles to cyber command, being able to compete directly in a level playing field with the Russians in uh, non-conflict, non-armed conflict scenarios. Uh, That's a pretty familiar story at this point. Uh, A big part of what goes on in these kinds of debates is should the uh, U.S. government's military activities in the gray zone, should that just be put under the covert action framework? Because a lot of times this is going to be deniable activity. Um, with Cybercom, a big part of what Congress fixed in the last NDAA was to clarify that certain uh, sensitive military cyber operations, they're not armed conflict. The effects are not going to be felt in a zone of armed conflict. Uh, that this, even when deniable, won't be treated as covert action as such, but instead will be categorized as traditional military activity. But at the same time, Congress has built up an oversight regime around it. So hold all that in place in your mind under the heading of cyber domain, back and forth between cybercom and our adversaries. The question that's embedded in section 1631 of the new NDAA is a really important and interesting and subtly distinct one. What about the same parallel set of questions when it comes to whether and to what extent the military should be operating in the information environment more generally? That is, not in the context of hacking, but not in the context of cyber domain activity, but in information operations. And uh, that's a distinction that's sometimes lost on people. But if you think about the Russian intervention in 2016, yes, you have a cyber operation, famously targeting the DNC to to hack in and steal information. That was then used to leverage and to goose and make more effective what was already underway, which is a larger information operation, which didn't have to involve a single element of hacking. 
It could be all bots and trolls and anonymous posts and amplification of fake news, etc. That was that was the bigger part of it. So that's actually what we're talking about when we use the phrase information operations in the information environment separate from cyber operations. And remarkably, Section 1631 expressly authorizes DOD to engage, when otherwise lawfully authorized, to engage in information operations, uh, which is itself a a somewhat remarkable (laughs) thing. That doesn't necessarily have to be a military role, right? Right. That could easily be just a CIA role. Mm -hmm. It could be the role of some other institution that we create on a bespoke basis to do this. Um, It could be a diplomatic role. It could be done through the State Department. Lots of possibilities. Um, 1631B, uh, makes clear that is a mission for DOD as well. SecDef, when authorized, can can do this. Uh, and then the question becomes, okay, well, is this going to be only on a clandestine, don't detect it basis, or can it also be a deniable basis, the sort of thing that would constitute covert action, certainly if CIA did it. And 1631C says this sort of activity, including deniable activity, will count as traditional military activity, won't trigger, even when deniable, will not trigger the covert action oversight framework. So in in all the language, it's all clearly adapted and borrowed from the cyber oversight system. It's it's all just taken and kind of carried over to this. Um, With one exception, as I mentioned in the cyber context, we replaced the lost possibility of covert action reporting and oversight with a tailored uh, reporting system, which runs not to the intelligence committees, but to the armed services committees, where particular operations, both on a quarterly basis in general and on a 48-hour basis when the effect will be felt abroad outside a combat uh, zone, uh, reporting runs to the armed services committee for those activities only half of that model got carried forward for this new area of military deniable or covert information operations. Uh, specifically, the quarterly reporting requirement is there, but not the 48-hour sensitive military information operations scenario. Uh, I think that's probably a mistake. That that needs to be tightened up because there are going to be really high-risk scenarios. If, the, if we really want our military to be engaging in information operations right. more generally, uh, and, and to be clear, like what we're imagining here is scenarios in which the Russians are continuing to spread false information, let's say, in Mas- Macedonia. I understand, by the way, that's the proper North Macedonia. North Macedonia. Actually, North Macedonia, not just Macedonia. Not Macedonia either way, apparently. Um, I'm sure some listener will correct us on that if that's not right. But they're doing something like that, and we're going to respond in kind to counter the effects of their propaganda or presumably perhaps engage in some propaganda of our own. It's the sort of thing that used to be done by the CIA. This is high-stakes stuff. There's a lot of potential spillover in the currently globalized social media information environment. So there's a real risk of that information blowing back into the United States. Um, I'm surprised they don't have the 48-hour reporting requirement to go with it. But make no mistake, what's going on here is we're building out a gray zone conflict architecture where we are putting the military, not just in the cyber context, but in the broader information context, in a central position. And it's not obvious it had to be that way. So NDAA, Pretty interesting stuff. There's a lot more to come. Did you want to flag anything right now that you saw Just in the really, NDA? Really, I, what mostly what I saw was what wasn't in it. Right, that that the compared to the version of HR 2500, which is the bill the House passed, um, the conference report omits a lot of stuff that had been pretty important to the House, to, especially the progressive Dems in the House. So, for example. Um, 
right? It waters down sort of the use of force against Iran provision that had been the original NDAA. Um, the, there was a provision that would have ended U.S. weapons and security aid to the Saudis. There was a provision that would have barred— <laughs> I'm not surprised that did not get through. I know. There's a provision that would have barred use of Pentagon funds for a southern border wall. Um, there's a provision that would have barred discrimination right. against transgender now, service just, members. Just for the, for the first one you just mentioned, yeah. border wall, um, I think it's foregone conclusion Trump would have vetoed in that case, right? So they're, the conferees are, are wrestling both with each other Listen, and not, in the shadow of the veto. I'm not saying there are reasons why these things are right. I'm just saying uh-huh. it's important that, you know, most of what's important to me about the NDA is what's not in it, um, right? The... Um, no discrimination against transgender service members. Um, no deployment of new low-yield nuclear weapons. Um, a repeal of the 2002 Iraq AUMF, right? A ban on new Gitmo detainees. Um, a requirement that DOD report exhaustively on civilian casualties. Um, just, you know, th- yeah. some, of this, some of this was probably poison pills, but not all of it. Right, and not all of it. I mean, I, a, I, I'd say a, a lot that was on your list there is was you know going to be a veto issue. I'm not surprised. I know you're not saying you're su- not you're not saying you're surprised, but I, I'm not remotely surprised that most of that stuff didn't get through. Yeah, but um, I mean, the question that's interesting is, like, did well, they have so, to get anything out of this? Well, that's going to take some processing to yeah. sort out. Um, the interesting question is, so in the politics in the sort of the poker game here, why back off? Why doesn't you know? Why doesn't why does either side ever give in on any of it? And it's a calculation about who's going to bear the blame That's if right. something becomes and I think, and I think, and the so, reason it didn't and so pass. This goes back to where I started, which is I think this is the House Democrats saying, you know, we're going to look like we're governing, so that you can't say we're not governing. Yeah, uh, it's interesting counterfactual to ask if we didn't have any of the current political context. If this was just, you know, a, a year in the life of the Obama administration, where uh, the Democrat, well, you'd have to change it, right? You couldn't have it be Obama, but. Right. Although that said, there were you know some of these provisions I think would have drawn an Obama veto potentially, um, at least at least a few. Uh, lots more to talk about. We will we will zero in on some particular provisions as we as we take the time over the week ahead to crunch particular NDAA <coughs> provisions. Yep. But otherwise, it's I think on most of our issues uh, it's going to be status quo, which is how it almost always is. Yeah. Um, okay. Meanwhile, uh, speaking of the status quo and national defense, so the Afghanistan situation. A huge investigative report, got a vast amount of attention and lots of comparison to the Pentagon Papers. Uh, the, the gist of it is the claim that based on uh, uh, a FOIA litigation that extracted a Pentagon Papers type of internal assessment based on endless interviews with uh, key players over over 17 or 18 years, um, the, the distillation or takeaway was that the actual facts on the ground and information known to the Pentagon more or less throughout this period was always much worse than was ever being said to the American public. Um, I guess it, it's, it's certainly fashionable and common to have in, for a long time to have become cynical about all positive representations of progress. I mean, it's a really old joke. If jokes, the word to, to scoff at whenever there's a statement about how change is right around the corner or the trend lines are looking good. It's been so many years that people have rolled their eyes at such claims that there's a part of me that thinks, ah, how much of this is a surprise? I mean, how, how much delta between what, you know, savvier observers understood was going on uh, and what the Pentagon really knew uh, is there? Is it really like Vietnam in that, like, a lot of people were surprised to learn that, in fact, actually, we've, we've really known it wasn't going well the whole time. It seems less surprising 
Yeah, although I wonder if partly that's because of Vietnam, right? That 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 we are just more cynical and more distrusting of government than we were forty years ago. There's there's probably that's an element of that. Ago. There's an element of that, but I don't think I think a lot of the cynicism. I mean, Lord knows there's a huge amount of cynicism yeah. about our our uh, progress with scare quotes around it. Progress in Afghanistan for at least for you know twelve years, if not fifteen years, out of this past two decades. Uh, it's not just sort of like, ah, I just don't trust the government. It's that, no, there's lots of people report. There's a lot of reporting. There's a lot of visibility. It's clearly not going well, no matter what anyone might say. Um, and so there, to me, yes, this is important. And, and if there are particular instances of false statements, that'd be a big deal. Yeah. But if instead what it is is a, a, a condemnation of the Pentagon for consistently in, insisting or taking the position that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, only the tunnel has no end or the light to train, um, it doesn't surprise me. So it doesn't surprise me. Like when I, and, and we should say that Craig Whitlock is the author, and, and this is a really a fantastic service he has done. It doesn't surprise me. Um, like many things these days, right, one has suspicions that things are almost certainly true, but a trouble proving them. Yeah, and so if, if nothing else, here's here's a great here's piece for the record that had to be pried out of the Pentagon, but um, it, but it got out, that is right. and well, now, so, there it is. So here in, here in Lamy, you extol the virtues of FOIA. Um, yeah. But also, I mean, I, I actually think, and the story, Craig, you know, it's a, it's a news story. It's not an opinion piece. Like, Craig doesn't go there. But I actually think that the real sort of... Um, if anyone has some explaining to do, right, in response to the story, I think part of it's Congress because you know we've talked at length over and over on this podcast about Congress's fecklessness and its refusal to sort of upset what it perceives as a you know acceptable status quo when it comes to the scope of legal authorities vis-a-vis the conflict with Al Qaeda and associated groups, um, and I think this is what happens right in a world in which Congress is not regularly exercising an active, at least oversight function, even if not sort of substantive regulatory function, because all of this was there, right? Like, the, you know, these these things could have been found if Congress had wanted to look for them all along. And, and I think what we're seeing here is it's left to the journalists because Congress is just perfectly happy to wash its hands of any responsibility for what's going on. So here's my question for you. So what follows from all this? I mean, what's the policy cash out? If we imagine, for example, that this wasn't yeah. some internal Pentagon report. Yeah. By the way, th- that's a, you're assuming that uh, Congress didn't have or that the Armed Services Committees never saw or heard the gist of either the disaggregated content or yep. the actual report itself. I don't know if we know that that's Well, so I'd like case. to know the answer to that, right? Yeah. But even they did. So so what, what would be the action that would follow from some timely knowledge mm-hmm. of this report or the yeah. contents of it eight years ago? Is it that Congress would, based on this, uh, repeal the AUMF? No. Or, or, or the reverse? Would Congress then pressure the administration to double down our efforts and put more troops in? You know, I, uh, so the short answer probably is I don't know. But whatever it is, it would have been democratically accountable, right? That 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 I don't know what how maybe Congress would have wanted more specific um, funding agreements, right? That, you know, why are we pouring all this money into a war that your own generals are telling us they can't win, right? Like, I mean, there's there are conversations that I think could have been had that might have been had behind closed doors, although I've never even heard, you know, a, a suggestion to that effect. But one way or the other, I think this amplifies to me, right, my years-long concern that this is what happens when Congress abdicates its role vis-a-vis the war powers. So my, I have a, my different take is that what it shows you is that the truth 
that's been there all along that the insiders all know and that savvy outsiders understand that people may or may not like, but certainly can't ever be said by its own name is this, that our, our multi-decade commitment to Afghanistan is not about winning in Afghanistan at all, vis-a-vis the, the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban and those issues. It's not about that. It's, it's a mowing the lawn, as they say. It's a mowing the lawn strategy in which we're there at a certain level in order to be able to effectively strike certain opportunities, uh, to, to, to use force effectively in that geographic location with the, some degree of effectiveness to keep the Taliban down below a certain threshold that's not actually that low, and that's the part that can never be said, right. and where the opportunities arise to strike at Islamic State or Al-Qaeda individuals, although I think that's you know relatively rare compared to the, uh, to the Taliban situation. But it's about preserving this as the status quo, like that, that this is this is the end state that's desired. No one can say that because the end state that's desired is, as this report describes, a, a, a fearful one. <coughs> but I think that's actually the, that's actually the honest goal, whether people are willing to ever say that publicly or not. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, that, was right. that, that was the happier part of our, that, of our show? That was the happier part of the show. Um, now, okay, we've got litigation going on, the Boston uh, Marathon bombing case. Um, what is the issue presented to the Court of Appeals here? So, um, Jokhar Tsarnaev, uh, he of the, the younger brother, the younger brother in the, of the Tsarnaev brothers in the Boston Marathon bombing. So, um, his post conviction appeal um, is being heard Thursday by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. Right. And the central claim. So, he's, got, he's been convicted and faces the death penalty. And, right. And so, his central claim is he's not, well, he is challenging the conviction, but his real claim is that at the very least, he should, the death sentence should be taken off the table because of what he claims was um, prosecutorial and juror bias. Right and other sort of misconduct at trial by the prosecutors. What's his evidence? So I mean, there there is at least some evidence that a couple of the jurors lied on their questionnaires about their familiarity with the case, about their involvement. I mean, the there's more than nothing to some of the substantive claims. I think the real question is: is any of it substantial enough, right, to cause the kind of prejudice that you usually need? My gut reaction is probably not. No, <laughs> so obviously you've looked at it much more closely than I have. I'd be I, I just don't think there's a snowball's chance, but but maybe there will be no, some. No, I, I don't either. But but there there would have to be some pretty remarkable evidence of knowing right. misconduct. I mean, in there's. That I, I think so. So to go back to the Adjutant report for a second, right? I think shockingly, mistakes were made. Yeah, right? and, and and I think anybody can tell you that there's that's a, a not like that, that uncommon, right? The, um, the, and, but the prejudice question in a case like this, I mean, it's not like he's claiming he wasn't involved in right. this. So I think the, I think the, or is the, he? Is it, does he? Does he claim that? No, so I think it'll be easy enough for the First Circuit to say, you know, any harmless, harmless. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I raise rightly it, so. I raise it to point out the contrast in timing, which is here we are. Oh, yeah. Right? Sarnayev is about to have his direct appeal, right? Assuming that goes poorly, the Supreme Court will deny cert, and then he will, you know, face a sentence in due course, I mean, there is current litigation over the federal death penalty. Right, but, but you yeah. know. Right. But you're, are, are you pointing out, Steve, that were he instead tried in a military commission, why we'd still be in the, the thick of unending pretrial? Uh, yeah, yeah, you got you know, it. That's right. Yeah. Okay. It's um, almost like the civilian courts are able to handle complex, messy terrorism trials. That's crazy talking. I know. Okay. Uh, 
the Pensacola shooting. Do yeah. we want to do we want to say anything legally? Obviously, it was horrific, and 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 a reminder that that terrorism, including uh, sort of Major Hassan style uh, exposure from within. Is there anything to say legally about this? Um, it, the the criminal the applicability of criminal law is pretty straightforward in this situation. I want to say one thing that isn't quite legal and is probably completely unfair, um, right? <laughs> okay, and sorry. so so I will I will I will I will preemptively disassociate Bobby from with, with from the remarks I'm about to make. I'm excited to hear what you're going to say. Trump's reaction, right? Like you know, to the Saudi piece of this, um, right? And like, oh, you know, because imagine the difference if the shooter were a Saudi national, right? Which he was. Versus, say, I don't know, an Iraqi national. Oh, you're you're talking about the fact that he like almost immediately tweeted out about how like, oh, the king is really upset, and they're all the the people. This like very like kind of suck uppy, you know, toadyish sort of. But also, uh, like, if, tweet I mean, if that our, just ex- that preemptively exonerates. Right. Uh, well, you know. So, in fairness. There's obviously a, a huge amount of angst that surrounds uh, Saudi Arabia's collective responsibility for uh, the promotion of extremism. Uh, people get real wound up talking or about Saudi the Arabia's and exclusion of that. from the travel ban. And, and, well, and then the related topic of, of Trump's uh, appreciation and liking, and, and especially his his failure, and there is no other word for it, to do anything after what ha- the the horrific crime the Saudi government perpetrated against Jamal Khashoggi. Um, All this, all this stuff is sort of kind of brought back to the surface by that, that toting, very uh, unworthy uh, reaction he he expressed in that tweet. So I'm with you on that. I'll associate myself with that. All right. Fair enough. There you go. Uh, I I, I didn't want to, you know, I'm always, I know that I, I'm a little more reactionary than you are and I don't want to ever get you in trouble for things that I say. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, Previously on the show, we talked about how President Previously Trump... Previously on the Pre- National Security Law Podcast. Previously on National Security Law Podcast, President Trump appeared on the Bill O'Reilly, what, b- homebrew website, whatever it was, <laughs> internet radio show, and, uh, and and it came up in conversation. They, they obviously planted as a talking point that the uh, the administration was planning to designate as a foreign terrorist organization one or more Mexican cartels, um, and so we've talked about this issue, they qualify legally, I think, no doubt, but is it wise as a diplomatic and security policy matter? Who knows? Uh, maybe not. Uh, Mexican government, very upset about this. Uh, and and then we learned very recently that President Trump has decided to suspend that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, one wonders, did they actually extract something by way of improved security cooperation with Mexico, uh, knowing this administration? Probably not. Uh, but if pro- they did, by the way, that would be an example of quid pro quo the way it's supposed to go. You mean for the interest of the country and the government and not for the political it's partisan like advantage of an individual? There's a distinction between those two things. Whoa, mind blown. I know. I wouldn't, you know, reading like reading like posts on the Lawfare blog, I wouldn't actually know that. What do you mean? It's a shot I'll explain later. Okay. Well, I, I, I have to rise to the defense of lawfare and say that you'd be hard-pressed to find a place that's more consistently critical yeah, with, of with, the administration. With, with, with one exception lately. Well, uh, be specific, man. I mean, I, I, I think the, the series of posts that, you know, Josh and Seth have written on Lawfare blog, right, about how— Josh Blackman yeah, and yeah, Seth Tillman? Yeah. Um, one thing that I've always appreciated about lawfare is you're, you are going to find disagreements and not a uniform house line back of when, course. back when it was the Obama administration and the Bush administration, right, they published me. Well, we were constantly, you're one of us, dude. Um, 
we were constantly accused of always, you know, telling the government line, and then and then now it's the opposite. Constantly accused of, right, of only being critical. Um, in fact, if if the pieces are good, we will publish pieces of, of, of varying opinions. And you don't think this is a good one? I, I I appreciate that. So I encourage you to write a piece pointing out the areas where they're wrong. Um, I don't actually know the pieces in question because we publish so much these days. I can't read it all. Anyways, here's the important point. Uh, Trump has suspended the designation process allegedly or apparently uh, in relation to the Mexican cartels. And one hopes that that was the result of some sort of smart diplomatic balance of trade. Um, the one thing I'll add is that's a legal consequence from all this is that both in the O'Reilly interview that started this and in the coverage that quoted AMLO, the Mexican president, uh, about this, both O'Reilly and AMLO referred or seemed to assume that if the uh, if the designation occurred, that it opened the door to the use of military force in Mexico by the United States, and that just makes me furious because it completely conflates to wildly clearly unrelated things, which is the significance of having an FTO designation and contrast that with being an associated force under the AUMF or otherwise being within the scope of any basis, AUMF or Article 2, for asserting the propriety of using military <coughs> force. There's there's all sorts of groups on the AUMF, I'm sorry, on the FTO list that no one claims we have the authority to use military force against. That's not how it works. True. So um, I'm not sure if, if anyone involved in those debates actually was confused and actually thought that an FTO designation was the equivalent of being designated as an associated force. Uh, probably not. But I want to underscore the point. And with that, my friend, I think we've covered all the serious things we were going to talk about. Yeah, I guess we have. Um Pivot to fr- frivolous football talk. Frivolous sports football ball. Talk. Launch, launch the sports ball into the air. Uh, uh, your your man, Eli Manning. Uh, one half of glory. Your Giants took a tough one last night. Uh, they're two did, and eleven, dude. They're all tough. Dude, ones. they were. They. <laughs> it's real tough when uh, when you got the lead. You're gonna win an in division game and then just. So I was. I actually. I. I. I did not stay up for the second half because I've been sick. As I've said, I was. All ready to email our colleague Jordan Steiker, who is a diehard all things Philly sports fan, and talk trash about how, you know, how can the Eagles win the division if they can't even beat the Giants? Because it was like twenty one to yeah. seven at halftime. I was like, <laughs> Here's you know how I'm gonna I'm gonna or it's like fourteen I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait just in case the Giants do a Giants and in the morning if they win, I can still send that email. They totally they gianted that thing. Yep. They totally did. Um, all right, so we've got the college football playoffs selections. Yep. And it went pretty much, I think, pretty consistently boring. with what we said, right? Yeah. Um, Utah made it easy. Utah really did make it Utah easy. Utah and LSU and Georgia made it easy. Yep. You, LSU pounds Georgia, yep. so there's no case for a second SEC team. Although I, I'm I sure some it, Alabama diehards are like, now nah, put us in there. If Utah had beaten Oregon, it would have been a really interesting conversation between Utah and Oklahoma. Yo, absolutely. What? Which way would you have gone on that if probably, you if you were picking probably Utah? Because I think Utah at that point, Utah's one loss would have been a better loss than Oklahoma's one loss. Mm, yeah. Wait, who was Utah's one loss at that point? To was it during? The, was it Oregon during the regular? Oh, season? was it? Was it two losses to Oregon? Is that what it was? It was one. I thought. Yeah, and then anyway. versus a Kansas State loss right. for uh, right. you. Um, hmm. Yeah, it'd be a tough call. It'd be basically be a coin flip. Yeah. I think you can make an argument that the Pac-12 so consistently gets overlooked. Um, no fault of. You know, partially their own fault, but that'd be an argument for just like the diversity over time, sort of lifetime achievement for the Pac-12. Put put Utah in there, but instead the Utes are going to play UT. We're going to have a UT bowl. Uh, 
I I'm excited about that. That'll be kind of a fun matchup. It's it feels like a pretty evenish matchup. Um, we have the problem at UT that we don't have coordinators on either side of the ball currently. Ah, details. Um, hopefully, we're going to announce shortly that Graham Harrell will be leaving USC to come here, but we'll see. Um, do you think that Clemson is uh, a bad draw for Ohio State? I mean, I don't. You know, I don't think it's unreasonable. I I could have I could have. Ohio State could have been one or two, right? I mean, I think, because LSU, I mean, how could you... After what they did, they right. deserved one, I right. think. Um, I think, you know, listen, I think, I don't think Ohio State could complain, right? And, yeah. and, and I think... Well, I, I would complain only in the sense of like, oh, I don't want to play those guys. Clemson maybe is as good as they've ever been. We or just they, don't really know. Or, or they're terrible because they yeah. play in the godforsaken ACC. Well, but they've they've always been great while still playing but in the mediocre. Who's the best ACC. team they beat this year? Oh, probably Virginia the right. other day, right? Virginia. Yeah. No, they. But that's just it. It's like we don't have any idea. They may be they may be as good as they've ever been. They may be the best they've ever been. I think we're heading for I think we're heading for Ohio State LSU. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Oh God, that's gonna be a great one. And I will root with all my heart for LSU. Oh, I think LSU is absolutely gonna take Joe Burrow. I think is a obviously going to win the Heisman yeah. since it, since they won't account for anything else by the time that's decided. There's no way he doesn't win. You heard it here first. Joe Burrow for the Heisman. Ra- radical undershot pick. Yeah, it's, uh, we're going out on a limb there. Oh, yeah. Undershot? Underdog? Undershot? Wow. Underdog is a... Uh, well, you are sick. Yeah. Maybe we should let you go. Okay. Maybe we should end this early out of respect for your illness. Well, you know, you already got your haircut. I'm going to get my haircut. Very good. It's yeah. haircut day. You know, class- Actually, I did, I did not. I oh. did not get my cut because my haircut person was sick. So there's our oh. theme of the show. Boy, we are truly boring at this point. We should stop. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's right. All right, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. I'm going to go drink some tea. Stay safe out there. Adios. Okay, now what do you want to say? Are you still there? This is a trick. This is not really bonus content. We're just messing with you. All right, are you, are you listening? If you are, now we're done. Bye-bye.